This morning I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Today I want to speak to you on the subject of allowing me just to throw in my two cents. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Once you found your place in Scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I'll tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are times when I truly question what kind of grades Jesus made in school. I'm sure that he was a good student. He is the son of God after all. I suspect that history was no problem for him. After all, history is nothing more than his story. I venture to say that he had no problem with reading or writing because he was a master with words. He spoke and the world came into existence. He spoke and the wind and the waves obeyed him. He doodled in the dirt and some grown men that were intent on killing an adulterous woman turned around and walked away one by one. I suspect that Jesus had no problem when it came to subjects like biology or chemistry or physics. Not only did Jesus create all living things, but he authored all scientific laws that govern the universe. I'm sure that Jesus had no problem in those areas. He probably mastered those subjects. He probably passed with flying colors. But there is one area that I'm greatly concerned about. It's the subject of mathematics. The reason I say that is because sometimes the stories of Jesus just don't add up. He has alternative arithmetic. He has wacky mathematics. A case in point is the story that I just read for you. Jesus said that a widow who gave an offering worth only a fraction of a penny gave more than all the large gifts given by the rich and the famous. I don't know very many preachers who would agree with Jesus. I don't know very many mathematicians that would agree with his accounting. Yet that's clearly what Jesus said. The story that I read for you is recorded not only in the Gospel of Luke, but also in the Gospel of Mark. Both Mark and Luke record this story with vivid detail, and their details are accurate one story against the other. We are told that Jesus was in the temple, and Mark says that he sat down opposite the place and watched how people put their gifts into the temple treasury. When you visualize that, you must conclude that that's a weird way to collect the offering. It doesn't look anything like the way we do it today. In some of our services, and in fact, the first Sunday of every month here in the 915 and the 1045 service, we have some deacons or other servants of the church who come forward with offering plates. They 
typically do it the same way every time. They'll, they'll start at the front. They'll uh, politely give the plate to the first person seated in the front pew. And they'll encourage that person to gently uh, drop their offering in that plate and then pass the plate down the row. Someone else would be on the opposite end to graciously receive that plate and then give it to the first person on the second row. And the process will be repeated. And we'll zigzag our way all the way through the sanctuary. Collecting offering in an offering plate. Very orderly, very non-chaotic, very reverent, very quiet. And then after that offering is collected, it is placed in a, a locked box. And on Sunday afternoons, designated counters come here and they total the offering, and prepare it for a night deposit. On Monday morning, the financial secretary reconciles all the receipts. Also, two other staff members walk around to all of the offering boxes that we have located throughout the campus, one in the very back of the sanctuary, others located uh, on nearly every floor. They'll collect any additional offering that may have come in by that means or maybe even on Sunday night. They will keep that offering in the office, add to it anything that comes in by way of mail or a personal delivery from uh, one of the church members. And then on Thursday, we prepare another deposit and place it in the bank. Now, most Sundays at the 915 and 1045, we don't even pass the plate. We just leave it up to you to simply and worshipfully place your offering in the offering box. I must confess to you that when I first came here, I, I thought, wow, that's a little odd. This church only collects offering once a month. <laughs> Other visitors who have visited the church and since joined the church, more than one person has made a comment to me, wow, we love this church because this church only collects offering once a month. We have a budget of $2.4 million and we only collect 12 offerings in a year. Just think what our budget would be if we collected 52 weeks of the year. <laughs> I begin to tell people, well, on those days that we don't pass the plate, then we encourage you to come and, and to give your offering. You can place it in the offering box located here or throughout the campus. But regardless, whatever method I've just described it is very uh, calm. It's very simple. It's not real flashy. It's the very opposite of what took place in the first century. For the scripture to say that Jesus sat down opposite and watched as the people placed their offering in the temple treasury, that's exactly what took place. Before an individual could leave the temple complex, he or she would be forced to walk through the court of women. And there in the court of women would be found 13 brass receptacles shaped in an upside-down trumpet. And people would be encouraged to place their offering in one or more of those brass receptacles before leaving the temple complex. About six of those brass receptacles, they were very large, very round, looked like a trumpet upside down. Uh, six of them were labeled. Uh, for example, one was called the frankincense offering. Another was called wood for the altar offering. Still another was called gold for the temple offering. You and I would call those designated funds. People giving their money to specific things that would be needed in the daily operation, the weekly operation of the temple complex. 
But about six or seven of those brass-shaped receptacles just had a label that said free will offering. You and I would call that a general fund. People just giving to the overall working of the ministry of the temple. So they would just give to the, to the general fund. And people were encouraged to give in one or more of those receptacles. Everybody had to go through that certain area. It had to be right there where everybody could see it. The NIV translation is very sterile when it says that Jesus watched how they put or placed their gifts in the temple treasury. Both Mark and Luke use the word balo. It's, it's a Greek word that means to throw. Mark uses it seven times in these brief verses. Luke uses it five times in these verses. Clearly, both Mark and Luke want us to know that he wants us to have the picture that when people came up to put their offering in the offering receptacles, they came and they threw them with all of their gusto that they could muster. You think to yourself, now wait a minute, in those days they didn't have paper dollar bills, they had coins and sometimes the coins were pretty heavy. The heavier the coin, the more valuable the coin. So if you've got some valuable heavy coins that are being thrown into a brass receptacle shaped like a trumpet, won't that make a lot of noise? You bet. It's exactly why they did it. So that they could go up there and literally they could bollow, they could throw their offering into the brass-shaped receptacle. It would make a clean clatter clud all the way down as it spiraled down to the bottom of that receptacle. And the noise would reverberate all throughout the temple complex, causing other individuals to stop dead in their tracks, think to themselves, or maybe say to their friend, boy, God must be pleased with that person. Because he or she just gave a whopping offering you could hear it from here Jesus watches as people come and they throw their money into the offering plate as I think about that I, I remember back as a boy and maybe even in your childhood you remember the art of skipping a rock you remember that you could get a smooth stone or rock and you could kind of flick it and spin it against the pond. And sometimes if you got really good, you could get four, five, six, maybe even seven skips before it would dive down to the bottom of the pond. And when you saw that, you thought to yourself, now that is a thing of beauty. In fact, you may have even said to yourself, when I get older and if I become a parent, I'm going to teach my children the art of skipping a rock. In the very same similar kind of vein, that's what these individuals did. They would come up and they knew how to throw their money. They knew how to skip the rocks. They knew how to put their money, place it, throw it into the brass-shaped receptacle so that there would be such a clinging and a clattering as it made its way. They could get three, four, five, six, maybe even seven skips as it spiraled its way downward into the bottom of the receptacle. And when they did it, you know what they thought? That's a thing of beauty. That's music to my ears. When I get older, and if I have children, I'm going to teach them how to do this because this is an art form. It's exactly how they did it. And Jesus came and he positioned himself opposite the place where people put their money and gifts into the temple treasury. 
And Jesus does not seem impressed at all. He's not impressed at all. He sits there and watches, and he watches, and he watches. And he listens, and he hears the conversations that go on around the receptacles, and he's really put out with all of it. He doesn't seem interested at all until a widow shows up. When she comes, Jesus gets on the edge of his seat. And Jesus notices how this woman threw, Balo, threw her money into the receptacle. Scripture says that she had two small copper coins. That word for uh, copper coins is lepta. It's the smallest form of currency. It was uh, currency that was so small that Rome could barely even stamp an inscription upon it. It was so worthless it was so lightweight that you would have had to strain your ear to hear the clink clatter clunk as it spiraled its way down into the bottom of that hole certainly she could have given nothing to the treasury and nobody would have criticized her after all everybody knew she was a poor widow She could have given one of the lepta and kept one for herself and people would have called her shrewd and wise. After all, she's preparing for a rainy day. But Jesus clearly sees that she gave both of her coins. She gave it all unto the work of the Lord. And Jesus elbows the disciples around him. He says, guys, did y'all hear that? Hear what? Did y'all see that? See what? You see, this woman was unnoticed by everyone except Jesus. Jesus said, did you see this woman? She gave more than all the gifts of the rich and famous in the temple treasury. Now, friends, there he goes again with that alternative arithmetic. There's that wacky mathematics in full effect. I mean, how could he say that? How can he say it with a straight face? How can he say it with any sense of honesty? I mean, Jesus must know that everybody who gave anything gave more on that day than that woman. In fact, many commentators say that those two copper coins were worth one-eighth of a penny or one one-hundredth of a denarius. Some have even said it was the smallest form of an offering that the temple would even accept. This is, this is nothing. This, this is minuscule. This is almost nothing. And, and Jesus says that she gave more than the others who put in their money into the temple treasury? How could Jesus say that? I've come to this conclusion. I think that Jesus cares more about how we give versus how much we give. Because Jesus knows, and he's always been teaching all throughout his ministry, that giving and living are inextricably tied together. That how a person gives reveals much about how a person lives before God. How a person gives to God reveals a lot about how a person lives before God. Because giving and living are inextricably tied together. 
He's not so much concerned with how much, but he's definitely concerned with how you give. Because Jesus knows how you give reveals how you live. So that if a person gives with a sense of dependency upon God, that person will probably live with a sense of dependency upon God. If that person gives out of a love relationship with the Lord, that person in all likelihood will live the Christian life out of a love relationship with the Lord. If a person gives sacrificially, that person probably will live sacrificially before God. If that person gives trusting that God blesses obedience, then that person in all likelihood will live the Christian life trusting that God blesses obedience. How you give impacts, reveals how you live before the Lord. The flip side is also true. If a person gives for the applause of men, that person will probably live the Christian life only for the applause of men. If a person gives out of religious obligation, that person will probably live the Christian life only out of religious obligation. If that person gives out of a sense of self-sufficiency, that individual in all likelihood will live out of a sense of self-sufficiency. If that person gives believing that he only wants the attention of men, that person will live the Christian life only for the attention of men. How a person gives reveals how a person lives. Jesus is not so much concerned about how much, but he very much is concerned about how you give. Isn't that true in this story? The rich, wealthy individuals, they gave what they could afford. They gave what was comfortable. They gave for the attention and the applause of men. But this widow, she gave what she could not afford. She gave uh, even when it hurt. She, she gave out of desperate dependency upon the Lord. She did not say, you know what? I can't eke out my existence, so I'll refrain from giving unto God. She said, no, because everything I have comes from God, I'm going to give God everything I got, even my last two small copper coins. And Jesus applauds her. She gave more than everybody else, for she gave out of her poverty. Everyone else gave out of their wealth. She gave all she had to live on. She gave out of a sense of dependency, out of total desperation unto God. She would give in the same way that she would live before the Lord. Now please hear Jesus clearly. He is not saying that on this day or any day that you need to give every last penny that you have in the offering plate. And then after that, you mooch off of everybody else. He's not advocating that at all. But what he is saying is that be careful how you give. Because Jesus knows full well that your generosity is a thermometer for your spirituality. Keep in mind when and where Jesus gives this object lesson. 
He's in the middle of the week of Passover week. It's the last week of his life. He's already ridden triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. He knows that on Friday, he's going to die. He came to be crucified on a cross for your sins and for mine. It's probably about Wednesday. He knows that in two days, he's going to die. He understands that he came to secure your salvation and mine. Jesus has been in the city of Jerusalem all week long. He's been coming to the temple complex. He's been teaching. In fact, in Luke chapter 20, uh, Jesus is, he's like a floating classroom. I mean, everywhere he goes, he bumps into people and he feels their questions and he turns it into a classroom session and he takes them to school. I mean, every place he goes, he's like a floating classroom. In Luke chapter 20, verse 20, it's the Pharisees who come up to Jesus. Teacher, we have a question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? They wanted to trap him. They wanted to ensnare the Savior. And Jesus said, give me one of those coins that you have. Whose inscription is on it? They said, Caesar. He said, then you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to God. There was silence. Jesus moved his floating classroom to another area of the temple complex, and there he bumped into some Sadducees. The Sadducees, they had a question for Jesus. They said, good teacher, uh, we've got this scenario. We want to know something about marriage in heaven. For after one dies and is raised from the dead, when they go to heaven, uh, who are they married to? And they concocted this scenario For according to the Old Testament law, if a man died and left his wife childless, then it was up to the man's brother to then marry this woman. So the scenario that they conjured up was a family that had seven sons, and all seven sons died without giving this poor woman a child. And so the question is, when she dies, who's she going to be married to in heaven? Is it son number one, son number two, all the way down to son number seven? And Jesus sees right through the hypocrisy. Jesus knows that Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. They don't even believe in being raised from the dead. And Jesus feels their question like a gold glove shortstop. He knows exactly what they're driving at. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He speaks directly about resurrection. And he says, even Abraham believed in resurrection. Even Moses believed in resurrection. For in the burning bush, God identified himself and Moses spoke to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those cats were already dead, but they're very much alive because God is not dead. He's the God of the living, not the dead. So he says to those Sadducees, you don't believe in resurrection, but I got news for you. There is resurrection, and our God is a living God. Jesus moves on to another classroom. He goes on to another area of the temple. He bumps into some more Pharisees. Before they can even ask a question, he identifies their hypocrisy. He says, you are full of yourself. You wear flowing robes. You go out into the marketplace not because you need a loaf of bread. You go out there to be greeted by people. You go out there so the people will respect you. You want the best seats in the synagogue and at the banquet table. 
Oh, you offer lengthy prayers, not to be heard by God, but to be heard by other men. You pray, not for your own spirituality, but you pray to impress other people. And God's not very impressed with you. Jesus was a master as he walked through and he would speak and hold this class and this class and this session of school and take that group to school. It's Mark who says in our passage that uh, when, when Jesus got to the temple, the place where they put their temple treasury, he sat down. Luke doesn't give us that detail that Jesus sat down. Mark does. And maybe this is the first time that Jesus has sat down all day. Maybe he's been teaching and serving and preaching and doing ministry all day long and he's exhausted. And he comes and he sits down, hoping to see something good. And what does he see? He sees everything that's wrong with man-made religion. People are even giving their money, not for God. They're giving their goods so that other people will look at them and pat them on the back and say, what a great person you must be. And Jesus sees in this poor widow an object lesson. And he teaches a great lesson about generosity. Jesus, all throughout his ministry, understood that generosity is a thermometer. It reveals your spirituality. Oftentimes, Jesus would talk about money and finances. In fact, uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, Luke put two stories of two men and their money side by side. And, and each man responded differently to Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, it's the rich young ruler. He asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Jesus presents the gospel to him, tells him how he uh, needs to be saved. And the man walks away sad because he has great wealth. Jesus said, I want you to give unto me. I want you to come and follow me. And, and that the call of surrender was too much for the rich young ruler. He was gripped by his greed. He was possessed by his own possessions. His goods had become his God. He was not about to surrender them to the Savior. So he walked away sad. In the very next chapter of Luke 19, we're introduced to that wee little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wealthy tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He had run ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree for the Lord he wanted to see on that day. And when Jesus got to the spot, he looked up and he called Zacchaeus down by name. They went back to the house. Jesus shared the gospel. Zacchaeus responded in obedience and faith. Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, half my possessions I give to the poor. If I cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus must have said with a smile on his face, salvation has come to this house. For this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus knows that your generosity is a thermometer for your spirituality. That how you give reveals how you live before the Lord. There's more than one commentator who says that this Little episode of Luke 21, 1 to 4. It marks the end of the public ministry of Jesus. 
From here on out, Jesus will speak primarily to his disciples. There may be a time or two that he speaks to the crowd. It may be an occasion where he says something to the Pharisees. But by and large, this marks the end of a three-year public ministry. You think to yourself, that's a weird way to end three years of ministry. I mean, you'd think that Jesus would end it on a mountaintop, end it on a climactic moment. You would think that Jesus would stand at the front of the temple and offer uh, evangelism and salvation in the gospel in the clearest way possible, have an altar call and expect people to come in response. I mean, after all, if this is the end, you would think it would be a great message about salvation. Or you would think at least Jesus would talk a lot about prayer or the church or specifically what's about to happen with his death, burial, and resurrection. But instead he talks about money. He gives an object lesson about finances. This seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? It kind of fizzles and fades. You think to yourself, wow, Jesus, you know, I I think you're going to run to the finish line. And here you, you talk about a widow And her two small copper coins? What gives? I think that Jesus realizes that this object lesson is a great launching point for Calvary. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, what this woman does, Jesus is about to do at Calvary. Jesus knew that he came to die. He knew he entered Jerusalem for the very last week of his life. He knew that the cross was in front of him. He knew that the crowd of people that shouted Hosanna would soon cry crucify him. He knew he had come to die on a cross. And the reason he came was to seek and to save you. To seek and to save me. To purchase our redemption. And when he came to the cross of Calvary, Jesus did not give just what was left over. Jesus gave everything. And when God said he was going to purchase your redemption, he did not just give what was left over in the treasury of heaven, but he gave the crown jewel of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't give what was left. He didn't give some. He gave the best. He gave the total. He gave everything in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What this woman does is symbolic of what Jesus is about to do. This is picked up by the apostle Paul. In the Philippian letter, it is Paul who speaks about what Jesus came to do, that Jesus emptied himself. He became nothing. He took the very form of a servant or a slave, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When you hear that terminology, there is a spiraling down uh, into the depths of the grave. There is a spiraling down. Jesus gave up everything. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Very symbolic of that picture of those coins spiraling downward, 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 downward into that empty hole at the bottom of the pit that's exactly what Jesus is about to do and when Paul says that Jesus took the very form of a servant he was made in human likeness took the uh, form of a slave or a doulos and that Jesus uh, was obedient to death even death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. What Jesus is about to do on Friday, he knows is not the end of the story because early on Sunday morning, God the Father will speak and God will raise his son from the dead. Jesus sees in this gift of the widow an example of what he's about to do. He's going to give it all. He's going to give up everything in obedience, in desperate dependency upon the Lord. Elsewhere, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that when you think of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. God emptied the coffers when he gave Jesus the Christ. Jesus is rich. He has the eternal kingdom under his feet. Jesus is vast. Jesus is magnificent. Jesus is wealthy. Yet Jesus laid aside all of heaven's riches and he became poor so that you and I who are spiritually destitute might become rich in the sight of God. In the church, we sometimes sing that song, all to Jesus I surrender, and all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live, so I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Jesus comes to the climax, the conclusion of his public ministry, and what is he saying? He is saying to his disciples, he's saying to anyone who will listen, you surrender it all unto me. Because how you give reveals a lot about how you live. Because giving and living are inextricably tied together. How we give to God reveals much about how we live before God. So this morning, before I sit down, I just have to ask, are you surrendering everything to the Lord? Is there anything that you're withholding? Maybe you're withholding some of your money to God. Maybe you think to yourself that you can manage it better yourself than if you surrender the control of 100% of your finances unto the Lord. This morning, I encourage you to surrender it all unto him. Not giving you every last penny, but giving him control of 100% of your finances. You know that I do not know how much anybody gives here at this church. I will never know how much anybody gives here in this church. That's done by design. But God knows, and you know. This morning, are you withholding any of your money? But I want you to hear me clearly. I, I am convinced that there are many things in your life that are far more valuable than money. I want you to hear that from a preacher. There are many things in your life that are far more valuable than money. Are you withholding anything from God? Are you withholding your heart? Give your heart to Christ today. Are you withholding your sin, your past, your skeletons? Give them all unto the Lord. He is a gracious redeemer. 
Are you withholding your job? Are you withholding your unemployment? Are you withholding your fear of the future? I want you to know that God is in control of your future just as certainly as he's graciously in control of your present and your past. Are you withholding your marriage from the Lord? Give him your husband and give him your wife. Are you withholding or clinging to your children? Surrender them unto the Lord. They belong to you. They're on loan to you by God himself. Are you withholding a situation, a setback, maybe an upcoming surgery? It's far easier for you to worry about it than pray about it. This morning I encourage you just to surrender it unto him. Are you withholding a secret? A secret that nobody knows. Nobody knows but you and God. And there are days you doubt even if God knows it. It's a secret. It's something that nobody else knows about you, about what you do or what you've done. Oh, my friend, this morning, will you surrender that unto God? Whatever you have, whatever you're clinging to, whatever you're holding on to, whatever you think that you're a better manager than the Messiah, give it unto God. Because how you give reveals a lot about how you live before the Lord. So this morning, all to Jesus I surrender. And all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. Every lepta that's in my hand, I bawlow at the feet of Christ. I cast all my cares upon the one who cares so very much for me. This morning, you give unto God everything because how you give reveals a lot about how you live before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, there are some people in this very room that are clinging to some stuff, clinging to some problems, clinging to some relationships, clinging to even some disappointments. And today, you want to set us free. Today, you want us just to cast it all unto you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave yourself fully and freely unto our redemption. And because our salvation has been purchased, signed, sealed, and delivered, then everything is under your feet. Everything we have, we surrender unto you. We give you this invitation. Move and help us to respond in obedience. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.